This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Intelligent Maps. Guelphs versus Ghiblings. Bad Places Theory. And the Kinsmen of the Dragon. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features four original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots that bring the weird to your gaming table. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Overthrow the government. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. It's available now from Atlas Games. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The show notes you only think you remember. So it's time again for a preamble hut. And in the preamble hut, uh, we're here to tell you that we have been doing some video content uh, through Pelgrane Press. So if you want to head on over to the YouTubes and subscribe to the Pelgrane Press channel, uh, you can see a series of uh, virtual panels that uh, we are participating in and uh, all sorts of other fun things like our favorite gumshoe ability. So there's more Ken and Robin, including an Ask Ken and Robin Zoom event uh, for you to uh, catch up with at your video leisure. The stately unrolling of latitude, the scrape of the compass on the parchment, the spin of the compass rose, and the hick sunt dracones let us know we've wandered into the cartography hut, where beloved Patreon backer Gerald Sears wants to hear our ideas for intelligent maps in F20 games. Uh, Robin? So this uh, question is somewhat condensed. Uh, uh, Gerald was giving us some details on uh, his home game, but I uh, thought we'd better do a more generalized thing. Also, uh, by this time, Gerald may well have already run and finished his game, because if you're asking us for advice right away for stuff you need in your game, it may take us a while to get to any given question. This so. is not ideal praxis. I would yes. say. Yes. So the first thing I would ask myself about putting an intelligent map in an F20 game is if it's intelligent, uh, what does it want? Why is it uh, cooperating or perhaps not cooperating with the adventure? So I guess that causes us to back up then another step to how did the map become intelligent? Because of course there are uh, various options. One, the spirit or ghost of an actual person uh, perhaps a famous cartographer, perhaps an explorer, or maybe just some a poor sucker uh, has been bound into the map, perhaps. Uh, maybe it's on their human skin. Uh, well, yes, a, a person with a map tattooed on them. No, I, is, I, I meant like that their their human skin was removed and their ghost was bound into it. And then the skin was tanned to become parchment onto which a map was drawn. Right. Because technically, yes, a person a with, a map with a map tattooed, tattooed on, him on him, yes, is an intelligent map. It is an map. intelligent map, but uh, perhaps not what we're being asked to Yes, discuss. that's just a pirate. You, you people know about pirates. We're done. <laughs> right. Uh, so there's there's that option. Or the other thing is that it's a, a some other sort of a spirit, perhaps the spirit of the abstract concept of exploration or the spirit of a place that has uh, been bound uh, into the map or has decided to possess the map. It could be a ghost who uh, is in the map uninvited and um, uh, messing with you uh, and has some sort of uh, relationship to it. The map ha may have so much information that the informational detail coalesces into uh, an, an AI, but a magical AI, obviously, or maybe not a magical AI. I mean, it doesn't matter to you. You're a, you're a cleric. You just know that it's not evil unless it is evil. Right. And this is like your, your, your map amond. Um, that you, I, I, there's one in Narnia, there's one in a bunch of other fantasy books where you have the whole map of the world. And then when you look down at the map of the world, you can see, uh, everything that's going on in the world at that time. So you look at the, the, the islands and you can see the, uh, the, the people who are trapped on them. And you look at the, at the capital city of Kalerman and you can see the, the, the Sultan in his, in his palace. 
or whatever it is, that's so much information always active, always being updated that it would be a, a frankly, it's a surprise to me if that map is not uh, intelligent in a sort of a HAL 9000 AI sort of way. The Dragon Empire is too important for it to be trusted to you, Elf. That kind of thing. Yeah. So, so the next question, now that we've figured out uh, possibly the uh, six or seven things that the map could be, what sort of intelligence it could have, um, the question is then, uh, what does it want? So the m- most baseline thing is just that it's a talking map, that it's a, uh, it's a computer, mm-hmm. it's an AI, and you just ask it questions and it tells you, and it may be intelligent insofar as it can understand what you're saying and uh, interprets not only what you're asking, but what you're really asking, but perhaps it doesn't have a personality that's just sort right. of a Google map, uh, right. so to speak. A, a standard familiar spirit type thing where it just gives you the information. Right. And the question there is, why is that interesting? And the answer is, uh, not so much. Not it's really all that interesting. It just, it just adds a little note. Like it's like, um, when you go into the, the town and the, the globes are all, you know, continual light spells. It, it's like, well, all right. I'm glad that the town has lighting at night, but that wasn't super interesting, uh, compared to the globes being souls of people being tortured by the necromancer to light his streets. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. So next step up would be that it cooperates with all of your requests for information and delivers it uh, verbally as well as visually, uh, but that it is somewhat snarky or has some other personality. I mean, it has some other personality, therefore it is somewhat snarky. Right, because <laughs> it's being run by follow. a GM. Yes. It's like, so, well, if you really want to go to the, the marshes of Hodel, I suppose you could. Here they are. Uh, you um, want to go to the uh, palace? Dressed like that? Okay. Yeah. Good choice. Uh, here's the gatehouse for the uh, the red-faced men who've uh, coat their faces in the gore of their enemies. Uh, that's where they hang out. They're probably going to kick your asses, but go ahead. Don't ask me where you want to go so you can have that. Just, just make sure you pack me in my metal tube before you start uh, into that <laughs> building. That's all I ask. No reason. Yep, they'll wind up my new owners, but, you know, aside from the... You know, bathing their faces in gore. They they're reasonably respectful toward maps. So they are excellent they're archivists. Fine. That's yeah. their reputation. Um, another thing is the map might have its own agenda. So, if for example, the reason the map is intelligent is it was written in Dragon's Blood ink. Maybe it will show you whatever you want, except a dragon horde. And it's like, nope, can't do it. Won't do it. My dragon's blood would rebel at showing you a dragon horde. And so maybe you don't even know that until you're trying to find a dragon horde on it, and it's just not. Giving you that information it keeps taking you to a, a bugbear horde or, or something or a, a boulette uh, tunnel. And eventually you're like, I think our map has got an agenda. It, it doesn't want us to do that thing. And then of course, a map that has an agenda might have like a wizard would have put a familiar spirit into it because he wants some group of plausible dupes to collect uh, the rod of seven parts so that on part seven, he can show up and uh, whip their tail and uh, take the rod away. And that's the, that's the reason the map is being so darn helpful, if perhaps a little bit snarky, is that it's got an agenda and the agenda is only tangentially yours. Right, because the map in, in that scenario is Mr. Johnson. <laughs> right, exactly. The, the map then says, ha ha, yes, now that you've completed the job, I'm going to set off your brain bombs. What? Uh, yes, and, and so that could be fun if you have it, one of those It's more fun the, than the standard Mr. Johnson, I'll tell you that. Exactly, because then, well, unlike the standard Mr. Johnson, you've got the map and he's, I'll mm-hmm. set you on fire, you map, oh, well, thank, thankfully I'm impervious to flames or I, I can teleport out of here or yep. uh, the, the, this, the scene in which the map escapes from you and thwarts you would be fun. <laughs> yes. I like the idea of them setting the map on fire and then the map begins to color in the, uh, the sign for um, uh, uh, explosive fire damp gas all around you. And you're like, what? yes. what's happening? <laughs> Do you oh, smell no, we fire set damp? on fire the, the part of the map that we're on. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, the other thing could be that uh, the, you know the map has an agenda and the map is not only trying to screw you, but uh, the, the map has sworn to uh, effectuate the conquest of uh, the blood face uh, nation and therefore is, uh, you know, it'll, it'll help you out, but it keeps reminding, you know, really the whole reason I'm here is to lead, see this treasure hoard here. I know you, you're not, you don't want to, you don't have a beef with them, but well, guess what? I'm going to do my, you know, it's perfectly honest with you about the fact that it's trying to steer you in a given direction and keeps offering you uh, blandishments and, and so forth. And then uh, every time you want to go to the map for information, it's the sort of complex negotiation that uh, leads the map to say, oh, by the way, remember, I'm impervious to flame because uh, I think mm-hmm. that map would be even more annoying than the Mr. <laughs> Johnson map. 
And I uh, sort of alluded to it with the, the the map. There's the kind of map that can change the world as you change it. So if you draw a river onto the map, suddenly a river appears. And that's a pretty big uh, artifact. But if you don't control it and the map does, then it's a different bunch of blandishments. It can be a standard sort of magic item where you have to talk the map into making a river and it can only do so many of those things before it loses its its world-shaping powers. Or maybe it can do it whenever it wants and it's actually... Uh, something that was drawn by, you know, Thoth at the beginning of time when he invented the map. And this is his map. And uh, the only thing is that you start making a bunch of rivers. Thoth hears about it and he gets mad and he's like, there's my map. I knew I put it somewhere. And now you have beef with Thoth, which you probably don't want him being the god of magic and all. Um, I guess we the map could also be like the straight up honest mission giver. Uh, it could uh, be the one go, oh, hey, I. Uh, uh, notice here that the floods have uh, have come to the plains, and uh, that has uh, driven uh, the, the Goreface men uh, further up the river to where uh, away from their fortresses, where they're ill defended. And uh, this is your chance to uh, uh, go and get them. And also, or, or the map could be telling you, "Oh, look, there's the the, the singing trees are in bloom, and you know that their uh, uh, petals are worth uh, a lot more these days. So, uh, you know, let's head on over here for this opportunity." Or what? You know, they could just be telling you where the adventure is. The, the map is the voice on the tape you know exactly the the place you're looking at jim is the castle of the red-faced men your mission should you choose to accept it is to enter that castle seize the princess who they have captured and defeat them in single combat making them red-faced and also shame-faced this map will self-destruct except that it can't because it can't be set on fire <laughs> <laughs> yes and uh to roll back to some of those other ideas the map might be cooperating you uh, with you only to a certain point it's uh my tomb has been desecrated, so I've uh, possessed this map and I'll lead you to the tomb, which uh, there's some additional treasure, which you can take without desecrating my tomb, but you also have to reconsecrate uh, my tomb while you do that. And so uh, it can be giving you uh, sort of fun tactical details, right? It, it, the If it's uh, the, the voice of a ghost uh, in, in a crypt, it can uh, be, well, okay, so uh, up in the right here, this room, uh, uh, you see here, there's three bugbears and they're uh, normally uh, by this door here. But uh, if you ring this bell, they'll move over to this door here. So it's basically, you know, it could be a tactical map. That right. Is it's, drawing it's, the, yeah, it's the tactical plot from, you know, aliens or whatever. So uh, ultimately, I think the, the best thing that can happen with an intelligent map in an F20 game is that once you finally get to the ultimate destination, the thing that has been uh, leading you to all along, and it, it could be an exploratory map, right? It could be encouraging you. Uh, you know, I'll help you get to the edge of the map. And then from there on, you have to start drawing stuff on the map. So that could be another additional right. it, motivation. It, it wants more information. But ultimately, I think that this is fun if you get to meet the map, that you meet the spirit, you meet the ghost, uh, the uh, the cartographer who slumped over and died in front of the map. His shade appears after you after either he hoses you or you fulfill the ultimate uh, goal of the uh, the mission and the map at that point might it might even be a deus ex machina right it could be the the actual uh, god of of maps or knowledge it could be thoth uh, who has appeared to you all along to grant you uh, boons uh, and or punishments depending on how well you've uh, fulfilled its uh, maply commands uh, and when we get to the boons and punishments, it's time for us to uh, quickly scuttle to the next segment. In these eldritch and or vampire fleeing times, you may have only one player cooped up with you. What better time, then, to go to the Bundle of Holding to scoop up Palgrain Press's flagship gumshoe one-to-one -one game, Cthulhu Confidential, featuring not one but three noir detectives, to combine the hard-boiled and the terrifying. And if you upgrade your bundle, it includes not one but two one-to-one -one games. Because you also get Knight's Black Agent solo ops. The starter tier includes bonus scenarios. The Howling Fog. The House Up in the hills. One for the money. The upgrade also nabs you more Cthulhu Confidential scenarios and an extra solo ops run to boot. This deal can't last long. In fact, it only lasts till May 18th. So grab the tension, the mystery, and the one-to-oneness of it all. Today at bundleofholding.com slash presents slash confidential.
It's time once more to enter the history hut. And this time around, uh, we are uh, hearing uh, the lutes and uh, uh, smelling the olive trees of uh, the uh, 12th and 13th century Italy because uh, uh, esteemed Patreon backer Sybil Perman asks, how would you incorporate or draw inspiration from the conflict between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines for a game? And uh, uh, Ken, this uh, seems like an obscure conflict because it is, and it's a conflict yeah. that kept going even after the putative cause for the conflict uh, was lo- long solved. So um, this is uh, the Guelphs. Everybody remember, everybody write this down. They were a pro-Pope. Uh, the Ghibellines were pro-Holy Roman Emperor. And uh, the, the, the names come from uh, the uh, family of Welf which was the uh, historical Dukes of Bavaria and the Ghibellines, of course, then uh, all know that comes from the Hohenstaufen family. And uh, fortunately, the Hohenstaufen family had a uh, castle called Veblingen, uh, and that's what Ghibelline is apparently Italian for Veblingen. And if you believe that, uh, the, the poor Italians, I mean... Good Lord. I don't even know how you get Ghibelline from Veblingen, but someone says you do, and you do. And the Welf Veblingen uh, battles, uh, the original ones in Germany, happened in the early 12th century. And the terms Guelph and Ghibelline, some say they didn't even start happening until the mid 13th century in Italy. Others say that when Emperor Frederick Barbarossa invaded Italy, the terms began to be used because Frederick Barbarossa was a, a Ghibelline, a Hohenstaufen, and the Pope opposed him as the Pope historically did the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, and so people who were anti-Ghibelline became pro-wealth, wealth. Right. And, and this isn't in the weeds enough. So right. this starts over something called the investiture controversy. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, and what is that, pray tell? The investiture controversy, uh, bottom line, is who has the authority to make bishops? Is it the king because or the emperor because they are subordinate officers of his empire? Or is it the pope because they are subordinate officers of the church? And in an era when bishops were reigning bishops, they were regnal. So, for example, Salzburg was run by its bishop. It was not run by the Duke of Austria or by the Count of Salzburg. It was run by the Bishop of Salzburg. So making someone a Bishop of Salzburg was a a political matter as well as a spiritual matter. Not that being a bishop has ever not been a political matter, but you get my point. So the emperors thought, if I have to have these people in my, and let's pretend that there was a power structure for the Holy Roman Emperor, but uh, have these people in my power structure, I should get to name them. And the Pope said, nope, they're bishops. Therefore, I get to name them. The whole point of them having land is so that uh, the church becomes independent of a bunch of stupid emperors who do dumb anti-Christian things all the time. Yes. Like, argue with the Pope. This power that I have, I would like to continue having it. and like and, to continue uh, having it, please. Yes, a, an unprecedented position for a, a political power to take. So, uh, th- that was allegedly settled at the Concordat of Worms in 1122, and uh, do we need to know more about that? We do not, um, except that uh, it's fun to say Concordat of Worms, but it's much more fun to say Diet of Worms, which is what happens uh, in, in, I think, 1517 when uh, Martin Luther gets uh, tried for not being a proper Catholic and says, you know what? Sick of this. But that's much later, and the Gelfs and Ghibellines, of course, are still having it on by then. But the uh, papal investiture controversy ends, but the should the Pope or the uh, Emperor run, for example, Italy question remained open, hence the invasion of Italy by uh, Frederick Barbarossa. And Frederick Barbarossa, when he invades Italy, and the reason you invade Italy all the time is that in the 12th century, the cities in North Italy were a big industrial resource. They were the closest thing to an industrial power base in Europe. There's another bunch of cities in the Low Countries and one or two towns in Germany you know, maybe Paris, maybe London, but the, the string of cities in North Italy are basically the, uh, the Excella corridor of the uh, Middle Ages. And controlling those cities gave you lots of money to use to hire soldiers to, for example, thump on the Pope all the time, or uh, in a happier world, uh, go pester the Saracens in the Holy Land. And uh, the control of those cities was very much fought over 
And the cities themselves did not want to be run by the emperor. And so when the emperor invades to force them, they turned to the Pope as an Italian and as a protector of the Italian uh, city's rights. And so you wind up in the cities, even after emperors have, have wandered away, a conflict happening between people who were either on the sides of those rich North Italian cities or were on the sides of people who dealt with rich North Italian cities. So the Guelph party becomes the party of commercial interests and uh, merchants and people like that. Whereas the Ghibelline party by and large becomes the party of smaller cities that are angry at big, rich cities, taking all the, all the money or are the party of uh, landlords, uh, especially aristocratic landlords who are the people who basically sell farm produce to those rich cities and recognize that they are being stiffed all the time. So the, the Ghibellines are the rural landowning aristocratic party, and the Guelphs are the urban commercial mercantile party. And uh, the fact that they take their names from Pope and Emperor is sometimes relevant when the Emperor is invading Italy, but is generally just a marker by which you know which side you're on in the larger politico-economic struggles over who's going to run Italy. And so you get an example of, say, the Republic of Florence, which is mostly Guelph, and the little tiny city near it is Siena. And so it's Ghibelline, even though it's a trading city. So it's mercantile people in Siena are not Guelphs because they're mercantile, they're Ghibellines because they're rivals with Florence. And then it breaks down so that the people who want to overthrow those guys in Siena would be Ghibellines, even if they don't care about the emperor, because they're just mad at a bunch of Guelphs. And that's what creates this sort of fractal factionalization. So if you're, if your neighbor, uh, big city is a Guelph city, you're a Ghibelline. If your neighbor, big city is a Ghibelline city, you're a Guelph city. And that's just how it works. Right. So the divide in power and the rivalry between city and country is uh, basically as, as soon as those two things become uh, separate power bases, that becomes a, a fundamental conflict in every society and reflects uh, today in our own politics uh, in pretty much any country where anyone is going to be listening to this. Um now, all of this uh, socioeconomic backing somewhat ruins the fun, weird habits that they had developed in order to distinguish themselves from one another, in order to express their polarization. For example, I believe they had different fruit cutting policies. Exactly. Um, the Ghibellines would cut the fruit crosswise and the Guelphs would cut straight down. Uh, the Ghibellines drank out of smooth goblets and the Guelphs drank out of chased goblets, goblets with figure work on them. Uh, Ghibellines wore white and Guelphs wore red roses. Uh, the Ghibelline flag was the uh, German uh, white cross on red, which we now see in Switzerland and Denmark. Uh, the Guelph flag was the red cross on white, the crusading flag that is the flag of England and a couple of other uh, countries like that. So it becomes a heraldic social uh, Crips and Bloods, red and blue, uh, sort of situation in addition to everything else, because, uh, you have to be able to signify whether you're a Montague or a Capulet in, in the course of your ongoing feuds and vendettas. And, and so that's a great use of your etiquette skill you know, when you, you know, you sit down, you know, you're in a Ghibelline city. And so the person who uh, knows their customs and byways know, oh, we better cut our fruit crosswise if we don't want to get into trouble. And uh, in in a Jack Vance story, the society would have forgotten all of the political conflict and everything, but except they would remember uh, the deadly importance of, of fruit cutting and that would lead to uh, to bloodshed. Right. So how do, how do we uh, spin this into a, uh, into a scenario? I, I want to just end with, with a, a brief sort of tag uh, because the only reason anyone cares about the Guelphs and the Ghibellines today is that Dante mentions them prominently in the Inferno consigning his opponents, the Guelphs uh, to hell. And he puts lots of Guelphs in hell. Hell is packed with Guelphs because Dante, and you're going to say Dante was a Ghibelline then. No, stupid child. Dante was a white Guelph. <laughs> <laughs> because once the Guelphs won in Tuscany, 
Uh, and Florence, uh, they defeated uh, the Ghibellines in 1289 at the Battle of Campaldino, a battle at which Dante was fighting on the Guelph side. The politics still happen, right? The, 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 the city is still divided politically. So the Guelph party splinters into the Black Guelphs and the White Guelphs. I remember back when White Guelph magazine was all about role playing. Right. Now it's now it's about um, uh, some sort of weird uh, uh, ethno- ethnocentric ideology. But the uh, apparently this all started with a snowball fight uh, in which <laughs> someone hit someone with a snowball and then they got mad and then someone else cut off someone's hands for daring to throw a snowball uh, in a Les Majesty oh, way. This is more Jack started- Fancy all the time. And that started a, the big uh, fight between the white and the black Guelphs. And the way that they decided who got to be white Guelphs was the side who had the most prominent person named Bianca on their side was the white Guelphs because her name was white. So they were just, oh, we're the party of Bianca. We're the white Guelphs. And so, well, then we're the black Guelphs. And uh, the black <laughs> Guelphs were the people who were super in in uh, favor of the Pope. And the white Guelphs were like, well, we don't like the uh, emperor, but let's not get crazy about this nonsense. So the white Guelphs are the sort of Ghibelline simp Guelphs, I guess you'd call them. And uh, the black Guelphs are the Guelfer than Guelph Guelphs. And then the uh, they take over Florence and exile Dante. So what I'm hearing is that you can never... <laughs> it's, it's Guelphs all the way down. Yes, yeah, so you can never actually have a scenario because you can't ever get to the point where there isn't another rabbit hole of polarization. So... I, th- I think that that is the answer. Exactly. And in 1334, uh, Pope Benedict the Twelfth threatened with excommunication anyone who said Guelph or Ghibelline. <laughs> he was just so <laughs> sick of it by then <laughs> that he he threatened to excommunicate anyone who used the stupid terms. He was so tired. He just wanted to cut his fruit. That's all he wanted. Simple popely wants. And of course, that ended it forever. Of course, it didn't end it forever. Nothing ends it forever. It, it only ends when the uh, uh, Charles of France invades Italy and says, shut up. I'm the king of France. Orient your politics around me, not some imaginary Holy Roman Emperor who's never going to help you or save you. And that was the that was the moment that everyone stopped being Guelphs and Ghibellines was in 1520. Right. And of course, the Guelphs were the pro-French. It just never stops, Robin. It never stops. There's probably a secret war of Guelphs and Ghibellines now in Italy. I'll bet if we were Italian politics woke, or maybe one of our lovely Italian backers will type in and say, well, actually, uh, the Christian Democrats are nothing but a bunch of Guelphs, or whatever it is. Well, certainly in Italy, even in like when you see a cooking show, there seems to be much more rivalry between little towns in Italy than in a lot of other places. And so mm. not only do the, the grandmothers in the next village over make red sauce wrong, but they're also stupid and terrible. <laughs> and maybe that is, uh, you know, the, and, and probably Ghibellines. Yeah, the, the, the yeah. inheritance of uh, this long ago uh, spiral of factionalism. So, uh, again, uh, once again, I'm trying to turn this into a scenario and I'm still just coming up with a, a Jack Vance situation where the hostilities between the two sides, you come to town, you realize you're in a completely polarized uh, situation, you need to, uh, whatever you need to do requires you to deal with both sides somehow and bring them together. But everything you do to interact with one side causes the other side to organize against you and uh, all of your attempts to unite them. Uh, we'll just, you know, like the Pope, you will eventually wind up saying, no, you can't be either. And uh, I think essentially you will be run out of town for trying to uh, bring peace to the, right. the two rival factions. And if you were curious, the Montagues were Ghibellines, the Capulets were Guelphs. Of course. <laughs> so we just know that. Right. About Verona. Um, yes. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, when I see a, a situation like this, Guelphs and Ghibellines, Reds and Whites, uh, Hira and Minamoto, I see a Yojimbo story happening. I think that what you do is you're the outsiders. Uh, God forbid you should be native to one of these towns and have a stake in the Guelphs v. Ghibellines fight, uh, although that's fun too. But if you are a bunch of Swiss mercenaries or French uh, sorcerers or uh, Saracen um, uh, uh, clerics or whatever you are, and you find yourself in 13th century Italy, Yojimboing the situation is what it is, where you join the Guelphs 
because you all oh, we uh, we hate the Ghiblings. They cut their fruit wrong. They they drink out of those dumb goblets with no fanciness. And so you you get the Guelphs to fight the Ghiblings. Then you go over to the Ghiblings and say, oh, I heard the Guelphs are coming after you. Those straight fruit cutters, those jerks and the Ghiblings pay you. And so you put both sides against the middle until they're both decimated. And then you walk off with both sides treasure uh, and or other valuable belongings. And that's the scenario that you do whenever you have Hatfields and Coys, Clantons and Earps, Gelfs and Ghiblings, whatever it is, you want to be Clint Eastwood. You want to be uh, Toshiro Mifune in that situation, right? Right. And uh, f- for those who are not yet uh, dialing up the Criterion channel to watch Jimbo, that is the classic film by Akira Kurosawa that is an unacknowledged adaptation of Dashiell Hammett's uh, Red Harvest that then be- uh, was unacknowledgedly adapted uh, into Fistful of Dollars. And uh, once we're once we're given the footnotes, mm-hmm. it's time for us to uh, cut some fruit in an annoying way that makes both sides mad and then run through this commercial to see what's on the other side. Cut fruit diagonally. Up and down. Cut your fruit up and down. The best of Askfageln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through When your map tells you to keep this podcast alive, it wants you to join such beloved Patreon backers as... Ben Brigoff. Jeff Cars. Jean-Francois Parody. Robbie Carlton. And Ruth Tillman. The rattle of chains, the sight of spooky cobwebs, the howling of a werewolf on the moor, the clouds, the turrets, the battlements, the faint smell of adjectives welcome us into the horror hut. Dun dun dun. But rather than drill down into some case of horror, or drill sideways into some author of horror, we're going to look up, Robin, into the architecture of horror. And because this is a debased modern age, we're going to be looking at social and evolutionary psychology and what it tells us about the bad place. Dun, dun, dun. Robin? So you you found this paper, I take it, uh, by Frank McAndrew. It was very exciting. Yes, and uh, uh, we will we will actually have a link to it uh, in the uh, show notes because uh, the uh, show notes are written before we record. But I had this link to put in it, and so basically, the author is uh, looking at ways that uh, define what it is that makes places and people scary to us, and what evolutionary psychology or psych- psychological impulses might lie. Uh, behind that. And uh, in the uh, introduction, he says that uh, writers of horror uh, intuitively understand this, but I will go on to now actually explain it. And uh, I would just like to say uh, to Evo Psych people that um, maybe we actually uh, consciously understand this. This stuff. Yeah, and I think put it maybe, in our work. I think maybe H.P. Lovecraft knew a little bit about uh, the principles of horror, you know? Who can yeah. say? But there is an interesting vocabulary to that that he proposes uh, based uh, sort of a survey of uh, the works of other uh, uh, writers in the field, and he's kind of uh, synthesizing them all into a, a presentation. And so um, he talks about uh, what 
uh, makes a place feel safe to humans. And uh, we, and perhaps also like snow leopards, uh, prefer things that uh, have both prospect and refuge. Uh, so prospect is uh, we like a thing that allows us to see as much of the landscape around us as possible so that you can see threats when they're coming at you before they jump on you. So you want a good distance. You want a, a, a good vantage point. Uh, but you also want uh, a nice cozy cave where you you are safe and defended and sort of fortified. Uh, and again, know that there aren't uh, things going to come up from below to get you. And so uh, you want to be able to uh, basically be secure that there aren't uh, predators slash enemies uh, coming to get you. And that if they do, you are in a position to defend yourself so that you can't be seen yet also are seeing them coming at you, which is a series of decisions that every adventuring party examines before they decide where to bunk down for the night while exploring dangerous territory. And so he goes back to primate research where he says the reason primates like to sleep in uh, the crooks of trees uh, is that the vegetation protects you from hawks and predatory birds while being up uh, off the ground protects you from uh, snakes or, or prowling jackals or something uh, that, that might eat you. And so that uh, notion where you can look down and see the threat, but you're sheltered is the ideal uh, habitation. It's, it's what you're, you're looking for the whole time. And if your house instead has a bunch of blind alleys and you, uh, you can't figure out the geography of it and there's a basement and you don't know how deep it goes. That is, I've just described, of course, a classic haunted house, but I've also described a house that has neither prospect nor refuge. Um, something might already be in here. It might be in here with you. You don't know. There's no way to know. And also you can't get out. Uh, you can't see the threat coming because the geography of the house is too jambled up. That's why very few modernist open plan houses get haunted, it turns out. First of all, ghosts have got aesthetics. Uh, they don't like it any more than anybody else. But second of all, it just doesn't work. And every now and again, you see a, a case where you can make a house like that turn into a locus of terror. Uh, but it's almost always a slasher movie, not a haunting movie uh, that has the, the bad thing happen in a big modernist uh, house. Um, and, and that that's a whole different argument. We can talk about the architecture of right. horror films all day. But because a big open space gives you prospect. Exactly. And a small rooms uh, t take prospect away. And also uh, just being uh, at night, uh, you know, night takes away your, your prospect. It doesn't matter, you know, how big a vantage point you have on the valley when uh, when the sun goes down. Mm -hmm. uh, now you can't see uh, your enemies coming at you. And of course, that is why. Uh, we associate horror uh, with the nighttime. Um, he talks about a concept called legibility, which is your ability to uh, discern your environment and be comfortable in it and know what's going on in it. And that a, uh, a place of mystery that is uh, illegible, it is hard to read, but you know somehow is safe, even though it is hard to read, that is attractive because it, it uh, stimulates your curiosity. And I guess in a horror sense, we see people uh, mistake places of mystery, places that are illegible, but they think are safe, in fact, turn out to be unsafe. So the uh, classic thing of the parapsychologists with all of their modern technical equipment going into the house and figuring that they're going to be uh, masters of it, uh, and uh, they're not going to be like those rubes who got scared away, or the dumb teenagers, uh, but they're going to be in control. And then they find out, of course, that the house turns out to be uh, not just illegible, but also unsafe because there is something terrible in it. Right. And he goes on to say that uh, because we are primates, uh, we have an ongoing threat detection that's always running and checking us out, checking out our environment in case there are jackals or, or hawks or something that might eat us. And that threat detection mechanism is working whether or not there's any reason. So if you're in an old house, uh, it's more likely to have weird noises. The, the boards uh, settle, the door shuts unevenly. There's um, uh, strange smells maybe in it. And so your threat detection mechanism is going off more often because there's more things triggering it. And so everything else being equal, you're more likely to feel creeped out in a place uh, like a house that sets off those threat detection triggers. So you've got the ping of the, of the radar going off all the time, even if there's no threat. 
And the absence of a visible threat, plus the constant pinging of your threat detection, creates the feeling of being creeped out and being haunted. Right. And uh, horror writers, consciously, not intuitively, yes. will, fill, will fill a haunted house with things that we feel uh, have a primal terror to them. So as primates, we uh, know to uh, not trust snakes at all. It doesn't matter that 98% of them are uh, perfectly uh, benign. We remember the 2% who tried to eat us back in the primordial days. And uh, so if uh, your haunted house is full of snakes, it's an extra scary haunted house. If your uh, haunted house uh, turns out to be uh, flooded at the end, uh, that's, again, extra scary because you're uh, being afraid of water is a perfectly good policy, uh, just like having the uh, haunted house uh, burst into flames again, often at the climax, uh, is also terrifying because guess what? We know well to be afraid of fire. Uh, so anything that uh, turns uh, a, a house into a, a, a place of uh, overt threat uh, is uh, inherently scary, but it also talks about the fact that old houses uh, that are uh, rotting and falling apart generate more infrasound. Mm -hmm. uh, and so just sort of on a indeed subliminal level, uh, mess with your, uh, your mind because uh, there are uh, imperceptible sounds that are uh, vibrations that are going through your body that uh, you know to uh, associate uh, with uh, places that you uh, can't trust because an old uh, de decaying building, I don't know if we've uh, evolved enough to to be afraid of buildings since buildings are relatively uh, new in the grand uh, scheme of uh, the, the human specimen. Uh, but nonetheless, somehow we know that uh, infrasound is, is bad and messes with us and we don't like it. Right. And, uh, and infrasound also happens uh, in areas where there is subterranean water. And so... The evolution might be that if you're walking across a perfectly nice looking grassland and suddenly up, oh, it was a it was a, a mire and you fall in and drown, you are on the alert for that infrasound as well. And it might also just be that it's at the edge of your perception and anything at the edge of your perception, you don't know if it's a threat. So you're always triggering that that threat detection. Um, apparently, there is such a thing as creepiness studies, which may be my <laughs> my favorite thing to come out of this whole paper. Uh, a bunch of people, uh, social scientists, gather a bunch of undergraduates and show them pictures of people. And they all say, yep, Steve Muscemi, he's creepy looking. Um, and so well, this is all just a way to, to develop a numerical creepiness rating for your faculty rivals. Exactly. But it's also a way to develop a numerical creepiness rating for everything, uh, according to this guy. And so the key thing about creepiness is that it is behavior that seems like an ambiguous threat and overtly threatening behavior is not creepy. It's just plain old scary uh, because the guy's coming after you with a knife or, or punching you or, or yelling uh, intemperate epithets at you or whatever it is. Creepiness is he might do any of those things. And I'm saying he, because of course, both men and women uh, in these set in these studies uh, find men creepier than uh, women. And so we are the creepy gender. Uh, it's just, it's scientific fact. Can't, can't fight it. Mathematically proven. Mathematically proven by experiments on undergraduates. And if you, uh, if you're bored, uh, Google <laughs> replicability, uh, problems in social science and have a good time. Um, anyway, but, uh, the creepiness is there's, they're not doing anything now, but they've got a death's head tattoo. They're not doing anything now, but their teeth don't look right. They're not doing anything now, but they're not making eye contact. And so those kind of behaviors are all creepiness signals about people. And of course, buildings, places, environments send you those creepiness signals all the time. Um, if you're in a graveyard, you know, most graveyards are, are lovely places. But if you're in a graveyard at night, now you can't see around those tombs and your mind is consciously thinking about death because you're in a graveyard and death is inherently creepy. It's not an immediate threat, one hopes. But it's going to come. It's going to get you sometime. And so it's an inherent uh, trigger for this uh, threat ambiguity because it's a genuine threat, but it's not immediately present to allow your adrenaline system to start reacting to it. And so that's why graveyards, by definition, are creepier because they have an association with something that is an unambiguous threat presented in an ambiguous circumstance. Uh, right. And so uh, uh, to tell the difference, Leatherface, if he's just sitting on the couch eating popcorn, 
uh, in his mask is creepy, but when he reaches for the chainsaw, uh, he is then an overt threat. And scary. uh, Yes. So you're no longer, uh, when he's creepy, you're asking yourself, should I run? Uh, And when you see the chainsaw, it's like, I should run. Mm -hmm. Uh, And on that note, we should run uh, through this commercial. We're doing a lot of fleeing in this episode, uh, but we'll do a bit more. We'll flee through this commercial uh, to what I'm sure uh, is an exciting and, and calming a conclusion to this hair podcast. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bopkiss. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome death. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. It's time once again to weave our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to stop on the landing and wave to the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky and then swan on in to the Edwardian parlor where waits in his smoking jacket the consulting occultist. And uh, this time around, the attention of the consulting occultist has been grabbed by an advertisement in uh, Fate magazine. One of us has, was researching Fate magazine in order to look up a UFO incident that was uh, central to the current scenario in his game and found uh, this ad for the Kinsman of the Dragon, uh, which on first glance uh, just appears to be an esoteric uh, text. Uh, there's a beautiful uh, sort of very charming uh, dragon uh, being uh, ridden by a uh, equally charming mermaid who's carrying this sort of mystic looking uh staff-looking thing. And at first, it seems like the sort of uh, occult tome that you would see advertised in in Fate magazine. Uh, Here is a book of deep mystic significance told against a fictional background to lessen the shock of hidden meaning. Oh, never mind. This still must be a magical book. The mystery of the ancient druids, the prophecy hidden in legend, the existence of another world invisible beside our own, a terrible psychic threat toward a third world war. And it, it goes on as, as ads do. Um, but it turns out when you, you look this up, Ken, that this uh, Kinsman of the Dragon is a work of fiction. It is indeed. It is a work of fiction by Stanley Mullen, who was apparently primarily an artist. He painted uh, Indian ceremonial dances in his home in Colorado. He wrote a number of articles on uh, such matters, and he was also an avid science fiction fan. Um, He was uh, the kind of avid science fiction fan who starts small presses in order to publish his own books. Uh, That's how avid he was. He was a believer in quality control. He was a believer in quality control. Just not what kind of quality, I guess. Because his third uh, book, Kinsman of the Dragon, he somehow talked Shasta Publishers into publishing. And Shasta Publishers, if you can look on the ad, uh, if you can see the ad, is published at... uh, 5525 South Blackstone in Chicago, Illinois. It's right in my neighborhood. Uh, it was a publisher run by a pair of uh, booksellers, Earl Korshak and T.E. Dickty, and they were booksellers and science fiction fans, and they were attempting to accumulate a catalog of all science fiction ever. And World War II interrupted it, and their mom threw it out. And so eventually they turned the cataloging job over to the great Everett Blyler of Dover Publications, who finished the catalog. But in their excitement, they'd made a lot of contacts with the uh, writing community. And so they started a a small press. And the small press was Shasta Publishers, because one of them had uh, worked as a, um, uh, I want to say like a forester, a forest ranger assistant on Mount Shasta and had a good time. 
And so uh, they published first the checklist of fantastic literature that Blyler had finished for them. And then they publish uh, Who Goes There by John W. Campbell and The Wheels of If by L. Sprague Camp and The Man Who Sold the Moon by Robert Heinlein and Sidewise in Time by Murray Leinster. And they published uh, Frederick Brown. They published Alfred Bester. They published uh, Mac Reynolds. They published A.E. Van Vogt a beloved Canadian crazy person. They published L. Ron Hubbard, which in 1948 was less of a crime than it became later. A, a list of stars that goes on and on. And for some reason, possibly involving being fans together, possibly involving Forrest Ackerman, having gotten them both drunk and or mad at the same time, who can say they published Kinsman of the Dragon by Stanley Mullen. And, and as part of the veil out for yeah. this esoteric work, uh, they arranged for it to get terrible reviews. Yeah, they so arranged. They be, yeah, so. <laughs> they, they 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 worked very hard to arrange that by going and saying, Stanley, what I want you to do is write a terrible, terrible book. Because Robin, I read that terrible book. It's available <laughs> on Kindle for uh, a a nominal fee, and uh, like an idiot, I paid the nominal fee, and then like an idiot, I started the book, and like a bigger idiot, I finished it because. So, so I, w w would you agree with the the New York Times at the time that said every theme of fantasy and science fiction mistreat is mistreated by this silly melodrama? I would, I would agree with that. Or, or with James Blish, who said it's an incredibly bad novel from any point of view. <laughs> Absolutely, James Blish on it. Or uh, Damon Knight, who identified its idiot plotting. Uh, yep. Um, and the, the interesting thing about the idiot plotting is that not only do all the characters make idiotic decisions, they make them entirely arbitrarily. <laughs> so it's not like they're presented with a dilemma and they choose the idiotic one. It's like they just are bored and so do something idiotic. And it's it's a remarkable uh, tome in all respects. And of course, it ends with a deus ex machina, uh, because how else can you end? It's just bad. So is it even possible to, to summarize the putative plot of this? Oh, uh, it's possible to summarize, Robin. Uh, Zizek has taught us we can summarize uh, anything if we're willing to be boring about it. Except Zizek, I guess. The summary is that our hero, Eric Joyce, got off on the wrong foot with a guy named Franchard, who is a uh, an occult mastermind of sort of a non-racial uh, Fu Manchu type, uh, controller of a group of terrorists and sorcerers and Satanists, and who has a sidekick named Darla, who is a beautiful enigmatic redhead, and who uh, uh, Joyce was fascinated by, but repelled by at the same time. And so he flees to the uh, world's greatest physicist, uh, and they get together because um, uh, there's been a series of deaths caused by radioactivity, and they're traced to Franchard, and it turns out Franchard is trying to get atom bombs to use against uh, every uh, source of power in the world, because it turns out Franchard is from the parallel Earth, which you can reach through a hollow Earth opening in the Atlantic Ocean by sailing down into it. And uh, he's uh, from the hollow Earth. And he's so. Is that uh, really a parallel world, or just like no? It's, an it's also a basement it, we didn't know about. It. It's it's a parallel world, and the and the opening between the parallel worlds is in that uh, hollow Earth. And so you you basically you sail through our Atlantic and fall into the hollow Earth of the parallel world. It's not our hollow Earth. That would be crazy talk, Robin. <laughs> And don't worry, there's another tunnel that leads up through the uh, uh, energy exchanging machine and lets you out on the Orkney Islands. So there's two ways in, at least. Um, and also, you can arbitrarily be vanished into the other world for no damn reason, because that happens, too. So the uh, Franchard is from the Hollow Earth, and he's and we learned that he is the uh, Black Archdruid of the Hollow Earth, and he's up to no good. And so they, they recruit an American millionaire who's built a submarine to sail into the Hollow Earth. And of course, everything gets wrecked because that was a stupid idea. But they meet the red archdruid who says, Oh, only the white archdruid can save you. I'm not, I'm not going to help. And so then they make their way back to our earth, having done literally nothing except die in the hollow world and, and meet some reptile people who are totally cool and, and not bad. And at some point in the course of all this uh, travail, our hero has decided, Nope, he actually is in love with Darla. He's not uh, creeped out by her at all. Uh, he just arbitrarily decides he's in love with her. She's been saving his life throughout the whole thing because, of course, she was in love with him from the jump. 
very follow sweet. And so uh, they make it back to our earth where it turns out Franchard's campaign of atomic terrorism is well underway. And he's summoned shadow beings uh, to, to eat uh, London and all kinds of badness is going on. And so then they get a, uh, a, a map that says, Oh, if you're looking for Franchard, here's his headquarters. It's uh, in the uh, Hebrides islands in Scotland. Go to, so they uh, in, invade it with the Royal Marines and they have a big gunfight. And just as they're about to be sacrificed to the god Ital by Franchard, uh, the white Archdruid shows up and uh, and and destroys them. And uh, victory for all. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. And the white Archdruid turns out, spoilers, to be Darla. She was the white Archdruid all along. And she just decided to white Archdruid at the last minute because reasons. Apparently, you can only you can only become the white Archdruid when you really want to. You have to really, really want really, it. You really can't just it. sort of want it. Um, so it, it's, it's at that last, uh, moment of the four moments where her, her lover is going to be sacrificed to a tall and she rescues him from all of them. But at the fourth ones, when she really wanted to and becomes the white arch druid and, uh, the book ends mercifully at that point. Now, the, the, the mere existence of a terrible novel would not be a matter for the consulting occultist. It, it certainly be, would not. No. You, and you it would have been be, able to read literally anything else last night instead right. of that novel. And and it <laughs> wouldn't be a case of, of uh, one of us getting revenge for having to read all the lesser Robert W. Chambers due to <laughs> it, a Kickstarter. Certainly, it certainly would not. It shouldn't be. That wouldn't be the sort of thing one of us would do to the other. This is the sort of, this is the sort of thing that causes the Gelfs and the Ghibelines to go at it for 400 years, Robin. So uh, <laughs> obviously, as it says right in the ad because you can reveal esoteric truths to readers of fate magazine who cannot be fooled there are no gulls that this surely the terribleness of the novel is merely part of uh, lessening the shock of its hidden meaning so uh, what indeed is the esoteric uh, meaning of this uh, exoteric text and what impact uh, did its publication in fact have on uh, the occult or uh, daylight worlds. All right. The the esoteric meaning can be teased out by the literally only clever thing in the book. And the literally only clever thing in the book is that the the watery underworld uh, that you get get to through the hole is identical with the uh, Welsh underworld of Anwen. And that the uh, the poem Predo Anwen, in which uh, King Arthur goes to Anwen for unclear reasons and fights a bunch of unclear cities and monsters and carries back maybe the Grail or maybe the Cauldron or maybe a guy named Guire. Who can say what he's there for? He's King Arthur. He just does stuff. And that all of those, according to a uh, the the Red Archbishop, I believe, the Red Archdruid, or maybe someone else. No, actually, it's not. It's it's the it's the uh, mineralogist Jensen who is also an expert in Welsh folklore for some <laughs> of course, reason. The, the mineralogist um, Jensen. How do we not mention him? He's he's so critical in the in the story. You just oh, I hope mineralogist Jensen is all right. <laughs> um, anyway, he points out that the Purdue Anfin or Anwen is a uh, a version of it of an early uh, trip to this hollow earth, and that is actually kind of clever. The notion that. Uh, Anwen is not just the, uh, the hell or underworld of Welsh mythology, but is actually a parallel earth that exists and can be accessed, uh, through megaliths and, and, uh, sacred geometries and other things like that that are also uh, alluded to in the novel, but abandoned for, uh, tiresome submarines and whatnot. Uh, so the, uh, uh, the 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 core, if I may, of of the novel's um, uh, occult uh, reality is that the Purdue Anwen is an actual narrative of a uh, journey to the other world, and that the nature of the other world is not as uh, Christianizing scholars would have it uh, a a conventional hell or land of the dead. That it is actually a uh, a parallel realm uh, with its own uh, rules and uh, hierarchies and physics and everything else. And that the cities of Anwen are all places that you can go stations, if you will, on the, on the journey of knowledge and intuition. And indeed our, our hero goes to a number of cities in the other world, which are identified in one way or another with, with cities in the Purdue Anwen. 
although he doesn't go do a a uh, a specific uh, esoteric initiation. For a while there, I thought our narrator was going to turn out to be the white archdruid because there's a lot of teasing about his father having been of Irish lineage and how um, uh, he doesn't really talk about his past a lot. And he's just a, a boxer and he hasn't been thinking about anything and and he's an idiot. And so I thought, oh, this 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 will be actually it still won't be good, but it will at least have been built up through the novel that this guy's going to turn out to be the white archdruid. And it's only at the moment of really being sacrificed that his white archdruid powers unlock. And he's like, boom, and he, and he, uh, and he stops Franchard. And that would have been, uh, kind of interesting, but apparently because he did not go through the, uh, the initiatory puzzle, he doesn't get to reveal himself as the white archdruid. And it has to be the arbitrary, uh, Darla who becomes the white archdruid. And this is not arbitrary because she's a lady. It's arbitrary because her character makes no sense. That's my argument here. But the notion of the Purdue Anwen being a secret world, I think that's, that's what this book is, is revealing, uh, to the good people of Fate magazine and that is being covered up by the relentless terribleness. And Robert W. Chambers, by God, a million times better writer than Stanley Mullen. I would read, uh, Percy Smith pitching woo to an ux. A thousand times before I would read another paragraph by Stanley Mullen. Uh, it, it's not even on the same map of badness, Robin. You you have uh, summoned up the whirlwind, my friend. <laughs> um, so, what impact did the did these revelations? It, w- was it so well disguised within a terrible novel that no one took note of it, or were there mystical effects on the world in 1951, 1952? Well, I think what happens uh, with the discovery of of this is that the underworld, otherworld, topos manifests, right? That that sacred placeness and uh, uh, evil placeness, to call back to a previous segment, that manifests, for example, in uh, the uh, Area 51, or not the Area 51, the, the, the gray alien caverns at Dolce, New Mexico. And that uh, legend pops out in um, 1979, uh, but 1951, of course, is during that first wave of UFO cults. And so the notion that there is a, uh, a secret base, uh, on the border of Stanley Mullen's beloved Colorado and New Mexico, uh, full of gray aliens is basically the same thing as the other world, uh, that is connected to us through a whole, uh, a cavern and, uh, that you have some sort of malign entities. Uh, operating in. So I think that the book either is the opener of the way for Dolce Base, or it's an attempt by uh, uh, the Shasta publishers, the, the Lemurians, who are obviously behind it, uh, to warn us that the aliens are coming through Dolce and that there's going to be underground, uh, just a, 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 you know, don't look to the skies. Uh, UFOs are, are ridiculous. The threat is coming from beneath the earth. The threat is the aliens uh, from uh, not from the hollow earth, but from a parallel earth, from a ultra terrestrial realm or uh, in through caves like that. I think that's the, that's the, uh, the big uh, tip off there. And then that the, uh, the, the book either opens the passage to it or it uh, acts as a warning to those who have eyes to see. And so does this get. suggest that the aliens were alarmed by the publication of who goes there and then took over Shasta publishers in order to obfuscate things? I mean, I think that the aliens uh, may have been why Shasta publishers, despite publishing The Demolished Man, one of the great novels of all science fiction. And as I mentioned, a number of Heinlein uh, novels, which are also quite excellent, uh, that uh, Shasta publishers went smash in, uh, in 1956, 1958, something like that. And the aliens probably, I think, uh, thwarted uh, Shasta publishers. They uh, they they um uh, they shut it down because it was too big of a threat, uh, and they were and they were again it. And uh, the period uh, during which uh, we were all looking to the skies is the is the sort of the fake out, and that's when they're they're drilling around underground and shutting down Shasta Publishers is only one of the things that they must have gotten up to in that time. Uh, if you remember, there's another warning of this sort in a much better novel called uh, The Shadow People in uh, 1969 by Margaret St. Clair. And that, uh, you may remember from Appendix N, where it is mentioned by Gygax as one of the sources for D&D. Um, and that is also about a underworld, otherworld, uh, tied in through Celtic mythology. In this case, the Commonwealth of the Fairies, or, uh, is written by, uh, uh, Kirk in the, uh, 17th century. And that it is also a warning of a strange, uh, fascist plot against the world, 
um, uh, while also being a, a conventional but very unconventional dungeon narrative in the sense of going under the city and finding this entire other world. Uh, so I think that um, the, the the message is uh, is reiterated in a vastly better novel by Margaret St. Clair in 1969. So whatever's going on, it's a, it's a repeated signal. It's not uh, shutting down Shasta Publishers doesn't end it. Uh, now, finally, the danger of discussing uh, a terrible book too entertainingly is that you will uh, entice others to possibly uh, check it out. So before we leave, are, th- are there any uh, warnings that you would like to uh, issue to uh, esoteric questers or merely the curious? The warning to the curious is proceed at your own risk. It's, it's, it's not so bad it's good. It's so bad you have to finish it because you have an award-winning podcast. <laughs> So, so, so only if you have an award-winning podcast. Yes, only you. award-winning podcasters should read this book, uh, and only for the purposes of tax-deductibly discussing it on their podcast, uh, for no other purpose. Um, the, again, the, uh, the 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 only clever bit I've just given you, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, you can reread Sex Romer if you want an occult world-spanning adventure that is written by someone with the marginal command of the English language. Uh, you can read Margaret St. Clair's um, The Shadow People, which is actually quite good and quite weird if you want to read something messed up that has applicability to your fantasy gaming life. Ignore, forget, and do not pass uh, The Kinsman of the Dragon. It is a very, very, very bad book in every sense of the word. Uh, well, on that uh, important consumer warning, I think it's uh, time for us to uh, withdraw to our own uh, underground realms, but uh, we will emerge next week with yet another episode. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Astfagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast from entering a bad place alongside such heroic Patreon backers as Steve Sigetti, Tristan Knight, Roger Edge, Andrew Miller, and Gray St. Quentin. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Snag a design for the times like, okay, okay, I carved the yellow sign into one lousy potato. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>